So here we go, folks. I'm Tony Evers, and I'm going to be the next governor of the state of Wisconsin. Not if Scott Walker has anything to say about it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Or the Koch brothers. I got the feeling that something right. Or Donald Trump. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Oh. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, sir. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, and in Cottage Grove on KSO. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, uh, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free, Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing, Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the world-famous Bradcast. We have big midterm primary elections that were held on Tuesday in Connecticut, Vermont, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. We will be joined by Wisconsin's own John Nichols of The Nation to make sense of it all shortly. And to give us an idea of what it all may mean this November for Democrats, for progressives, Republicans, and for the Donald Trump presidency. Also, not long after we went off air on our previous broadcast in a surprise announcement, Kansas Governor Jeff Collier conceded his very close GOP primary race for governor to Kansas's controversial wingnut Secretary of State Chris Kobach, even as counting continues in that race, which Kobach leads uh, by just over 100 votes. I will try to uh, get to details on what happened there a bit later today, as time allows. But first, let's jump right into Tuesday's primary races, which I am happy to report at the moment, though this can change quickly in the uh, days and weeks ahead. I have uh, come across no major problems so far, anyway, with access to the polls, or failed vote casting and counting computers just yet. Oh, good. That is good news. At least none that we know about. As you know, Desi Doyen, sometimes it takes quite a while for um, problems to come to light after these sorts of elections. As they're uh, canvassed and so forth, and as fights over close races uh, appear. But so far, so good for a happy change on Tuesday. 
Yeah, that's good for once. For once, we'll see if it lasts. As to the reported results from Tuesday's contests, again, these are unofficial results, and they're just reported by the computers, not verified by actual human beings. So take them for what they're worth. But as AP summarizes in a night of firsts, Democrats in Vermont's primary chose the nation's first transgender gubernatorial nominee. In Minnesota, they picked a woman who would be the first Somali-American member of Congress. Connecticut Connecticut Democrats nominated a candidate who could become the first black woman from the state to serve in Congress. Democrats embraced diversity in Tuesday primaries while Republicans in Minnesota rejected a familiar face of the GOP old guard in favor of a rising newcomer aligned with President Donald J. Trump. In all, four states hosted primary elections on Tuesday as the primary season mercifully, at least for some of us, nears its final chapter. Voters now in all but 10 states have uh, picked their candidates for November's general election. So we still have 10 left, but we are over the hump. Washington State Governor Jay Inslee, who leads the Democratic Governors Association, predicted on Tuesday that the uh, results of yesterday's primaries would offer fresh evidence of a blue wave that would sweep Democrats into power this November. For his part, Donald Trump fired off a celebratory tweet on Wednesday hailing, quote, great Republican election results and adding red wave. So it'll either be a blue wave or a red wave or it'll be none of the above. Something in between. Who knows? So let's get to some of these results here in Connecticut. In the uh, governor's race, progressive Democrat Ned Lamont will face off against Republican Bob Stefanowski in the race for governor after the very unpopular Democratic governor Dan Malloy chose not to run for re-election this year. Now, this is one of the few gubernatorial contests in the country that Republicans believe they have a fair chance of flipping from blue to red this November uh, given the, uh, the the unpopularity of the current uh, Democratic governor. Now, if Ned Lamont's name sounds familiar, it's because he was the guy who won the Democratic nomination in Connecticut over Joe Lieberman some years ago, back before uh, Lieberman ran and then won as an independent in that same year. So Lamont's back for another try, this time for governor in the fifth Congressional District in Connecticut. Democrats picked progressive candidate Johanna Hayes, a one-time teen mother who grew up in public housing before eventually being named Teacher of the Year in 2016 by Barack Obama. They picked her to run for the seat being vacated by Democratic Congresswoman Elizabeth Etsy, who is leaving Congress after screwing up uh, uh, the sexual abuse claims that were levied against a former staffer of hers. Hayes is a political newcomer. She defeated veteran politician and two-term Connecticut Lieutenant Governor candidate Mary Glassman. Uh, there was a lot of newcomers, political newcomers, uh, who won on Tuesday and who have been winning, frankly, all year. But Hayes will take on former Mayor Manny Santos, Hayes has uh, called Donald Trump's economic, I'm sorry, Santos has called Donald Trump's economic policies, quote, dead on. 
and has vowed to fight tax increases and unnecessary spending. So if Hayes wins this one, as expected, she would be the first African-American woman to represent New England in Congress, not just Connecticut. Wow. But all of New England. So there's that good news for New England. And here's this good news for New England, Vermont and neighboring New Hampshire. And I had not realized this, but Vermont and New Hampshire are the only two states in the union to hold gubernatorial elections every two years instead of every four years. Oh. As in the rest of the country. Did you know that? I did not. I did not either. But I do now. So uh, there will be uh, an election once again every two years for governor. And in this case, Vermont Democrats on Tuesday nominated progressive Christine Halquist as their candidate for governor, making her the first transgender candidate to win a major party's nomination for a state's chief executive post. Halquist is a former chief executive of the Vermont Electric Co-op. She won 48 percent of the vote, according to the AP. She outpaced nonprofit exec James Ehlers and party activist Brenda Siegel, who both finished with about 22 percent of the vote each. So she cleaned up in this race. Halquist is the latest in a string of transgender candidates, according to The Hill. To notch firsts in recent years, in the last decade, transgender candidates have won elections to two state legislative seats, uh, seats on city councils in Minneapolis and a judgeship in the San Francisco Bay Area. But Hallquist would be the first to uh, reach such a high office as governor. She now faces moderate Republican Governor Phil Scott who won his first term in 2016, as I said, by an eight-point margin. Uh, He has modeled himself on past Vermont Republicans who are not particularly ideological, particularly partisan. Scott has uh, backed things like gun control legislation after the uh, shootings at the high school in Parkland, Florida. He signed a modified marijuana legalization bill into law earlier this year. So he's not the hard right Republican we see uh, in other states. Uh, Reed Wilson at The Hill describes Scott as being in such a strong political position that the Democrat uh, who may have posed the greatest threat to him, uh, Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman, actually declined to run. However, recent polling, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about this, I hope, with John Nichols coming up. Recent polling shows that uh, Scott's approval numbers have been dropping precipitously uh, over the past several months. In fact, there has been a 38-point net drop in support for Scott from the first quarter of this year to the second quarter of this year. So this is a very interesting race to watch above and beyond the historic LGBTQ aspects of note here. So there's a chance that Hallquist could win this. Perhaps a very good chance. We'll see. Vermont Democrats also nominated some guy named Senator Bernie Sanders. You may have heard of him. Uh, He has not ruled out a second presidential run in 2020, but he's running again for the U.S. Senate this year. The 76-year-old Democratic Socialist won the uh, Democratic nomination on Tuesday, but he is expected to turn it down and run, as he does in Vermont, as an independent. Meanwhile, in Minnesota, former two-term governor and failed GOP presidential candidate Tim Pawlenty has reportedly lost the race that he was favored to win in a pretty huge upset for the GOP nomination to become governor again. 
He hasn't been, uh, he left being governor back in 2011. He's been working as a lobbyist ever since, and he later disavowed Donald Trump. That probably did not help him on Tuesday night, at least among Republicans. Uh, the contest was, uh, as I say, a big surprise. Polenti lost to GOP County Commissioner Jeff Johnson. He'll face Democratic U.S. Congressman Tim Walls, who hails from a conservative part of the state of Minnesota. So he's had to explain some of his previous somewhat conservative policies on things like guns and his, yes, A rating from from the National Rifle Association. An A rating from the NRA does not necessarily go over well these days in uh, Democratic circles. But according to uh, Eric Roper of the uh, Star Tribune, on his way out after his concession, Pawlenty greeted the media and said, quote, the Republican Party has shifted. It is the era of Trump. And I'm just not a Trump like politician, he said. Ask whether he's done with politics. He says, quote, the answer is yes. Though don't feel too bad for him, he was reportedly making almost $3 million a year as a lobbyist, where I suspect he will be welcome again. In one of the two Senate races in Minnesota, Senator Tina Smith, who was appointed by outgoing Democratic Governor Mark Dayton to fill the seat vacated by Al Franken last year, easily won her Democratic primary to run for her first full term in office. She defeated George W. Bush's former ethics chief, Richard Painter, who has uh, been a very outspoken and colorful Trump critic on cable news and on the Twitters. Uh, He left the Republican Party to become a Democrat and run for the U.S. Senate in Minnesota in response to Donald Trump, no doubt. Senator Smith will run against Republican nominee Karen Housley, though the race is predicted to remain comfortably in Democratic hands. In the other popular incumbent Democratic senator's race, Amy Klobuchar, she easily won her primary as well. She'll she's a, a heavy favorite over the Republican nominee, Jim Newberger in Minnesota's fifth congressional district, Somali-American former refugee Ilhan Omar has reportedly won the uh, the DFL. That's the Minnesota Democratic Party's uh, primary. She and Michigan's Rashida Tlaib will become the first Muslim women in Congress, predicts Cook Political Reports. Dave Wasserman, Omar would fir- would also be the first Somali American in the U.S. Congress. Uh, she would replace the seat being vacated by the first Muslim elected to Congress. That would be Congressman Keith Ellison, who retired to run for Minnesota attorney general this year. And in a crowded five person Democratic primary uh, that was beset by last minute allegations of domestic abuse against the front runner over the weekend, progressive congressman and Democratic Party deputy chair Keith Ellison easily won that nomination, though the domestic abuse allegations by a former girlfriend, which Ellison strongly denies, could prove problematic in his run against Doug Wardlow in a state that has only elected one single Republican AG since 1955. We'll talk to uh, John Nichols about that as well. And in Wisconsin, former teacher turned Wisconsin State School Superintendent Tony Evers has reportedly won the Democratic nomination for governor in Wisconsin in a crowded and competitive seven-person field. He will, of course, face off against the anti-union 
Koch brothers supported two-term incumbent Republican Governor Scott Walker in the general election, who hopes to win a third term this November. This, of course, is a very important race for a lot of the reasons that you already know and that I suspect we'll talk to John about shortly. Uh, but Stephen Wolf of Daily Coast Elections also notes that Evers winning this election in November will be critical for fighting Republican gerrymandering after the 2020 census up there in Wisconsin. That uh, gerrymandering has helped the GOP win majorities despite Democrats winning more votes in 2012. And uh, that may happen again in uh, 2018 as well. So, uh, you know, it's just remarkable when Democrats win more votes and yet can't take over the House delegation, whether it's in the uh, in the U.S. House or the uh, state legislature. And, of course, the uh, state legislative seats have been found to be um, uh, a, a, a partisan gerrymand, uh, gerrymander and ordered to be changed. But, of course, the friendly Republican Supreme Court held that off for this year. Uh, where do I, what do I else have here? Uh, oh, yeah. Wisconsin Senator um, Republican Leah Vukmer will face off against incumbent Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin, who the GOP has been eyeing as a potential takeover. In a state that Donald Trump reportedly barely won in 2016 for the first time since 1984, I think. Early polling shows Tammy Baldwin ahead in the race against Vukmer, who initially had opposed Donald Trump back in 2016. Baldwin is polling ahead of her by at least 10 points, however, after a bruising GOP primary where the entire party was pushed to the far Donald Trump right. Uh, and a, a bit of a scandal ensued when Vukmer uh, struggled to explain footage that was just recently unearthed from the 2016, well, from during 2016, in which she called Trump, quote, offensive to everyone. In today's Republican Party, she had to explain those comments. And I think she might have been talking about the Hollywood access tapes, by the way. Well, that was is... her response to it back then. And that is what she has to explain. Yeah. And that 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 is just another signpost of where we are. These insane times where that these, we live in, where the right is going. Yeah. They've lost their minds. All right. One more here. Uh, a big one in the uh, Wisconsin first congressional district. In the Democratic primary, populist iron worker and Bernie Sanders-endorsed union organizer Randy Bryce will now face off against Republican Brian Stile in November in the uh, contest to fill the seat being vacated by House Speaker Paul Ryan. Stile was endorsed by Ryan. He also happened to be his former driver. He'll go in into November in theory as the favorite here. This is a very Republican district, um, but and we're coming out of a, a pretty bruising Democratic primary. So we will see what happens there. We'll talk to John Nichols about that in a moment as well. But I should note the in the the partisan composition in Wisconsin's first district. There were about 2,000 more Democrats who turned out, uh, at least 2,000 uh, more Democrats who turned out in that race than Republicans. Just in case that's a signpost for what lies ahead. That was also um, true across the state, at least in the Senate primary, where about 100,000 more votes were cast in the competitive 
Democratic gubernatorial primary than in the competitive Republican Senate primary. Also a potentially good sign for Democrats uh, before this November. Craig Gilbert of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel tweeted with the caveat that these things are not always predictive of the fall. It's worth noting that it looks like Democratic turnout clearly outstripped Republican turnout in Wisconsin even though the Republican Senate primary was closer and had much higher spending. Let's take a quick break, and we will come back with the great John Nichols to talk about all of that and much more right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Please stay with us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Wisconsin. Indeed. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here trying to help you through your day, your night, and these troubling times. We are also trying to make sense of Tuesday's big primary elections in Vermont, Connecticut, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, and what they may mean for Democrats, Republicans, Donald Trump, and frankly, all of us this November, as we are now less than three months away from what I think pretty much everyone agrees with, uh, is the most important midterm election in a very, very long time and perhaps ever. Joining us now with some more analysis on all of this and what happened on Tuesday is our old friend and great longtime progressive journalist John Nichols, Washington correspondent for The Nation, contributing writer for The Progressive and In These Times, and associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times. He's also the author of Horseman of the Trumpocalypse. John Nichols, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. It is a pleasure to be with you, sir. I know you're on the roll, so let's see how much we can get in here today. I wanted to have you on, of course, because uh, as one of Wisconsin's favorite sons, uh, who knows Wisconsin politics as well or better than anyone, uh, I wanted to get your analysis on several key races in Wisconsin and in neighboring Minnesota, but it looks like you have betrayed your Wisconsin and Minnesota brothers and sisters today by writing about the Vermont gubernatorial race right out of the box at the nation today. So let me start there very quickly, John. Uh, you've got an encouraging profile of political newcomer Christine Halquist today, uh, who, as you write, made history on Tuesday night when she won the Democratic nomination for governor of Vermont, a victory that made her the first transgender candidate selected by a major party to bid for an American governorship. But you also note that she's not only a landmark LGBTQ candidate here for high office, she's also a visionary progressive who sees Vermont as a beacon of hope for the rest of the country. How so, John Nichols? Well, a very uh, a lot to say there, and and look, it is important, right, that we break these barriers. That a transgender woman has been nominated for a governorship in an American state by a major party, uh, and as someone who came into the race relatively late, uh, didn't have immense amounts of money, 
and you know just campaigned and mm-hmm. and and prevailed. But it's also important to recognize that, as she says, one of the reasons that she prevailed is because she spoke to the issues that people are passionate about in Vermont, especially Vermont Democrats. And her economic and social justice agenda was very specific focus on climate change and on you know, really making the Green New mm-hmm. Deal transition mm-hmm. uh, was an extremely well-thought, extremely well-positioned candidacy. And so I, I think that, that one of the things that, that she says about this is that, yeah, there will be, you know, some folks who who got a problem with it, who don't, don't want to vote for somebody who's different or who's a little different or mm-hmm. who's been through... A transition, but as she says, she thinks that's a small minority, and she thinks most people in Vermont are going to give her a chance and want to hear where she stands on the issue. Mm-hmm. And that's what she keeps coming back to: is that those stands on the issue um, were were the things that carried her through. I mean, that was what carried her through a primary was a very big victory, and what now positions her for a fall run in a state that a lot of the country doesn't fully understand. A lot of the United States thinks of Vermont as simply a progressive state because it sends Bernie Sanders to the Senate Mm -hmm. and Patrick Leahy. In fact, Vermont is a state that has elected quite a few Republican governors, in fact, Mm -hmm. has an incumbent Republican governor right now. And if Vermont is going to be that beacon for the rest of the country, if it's going to break through, it needs to elect someone who's really ready to to make big changes, now, and that's what she's positioned herself as. And you uh, you mentioned uh, the uh, incumbent Republican governor uh, R- R- Phil Scott, who is actually uh, a pretty moderate governor. Uh, he had been pretty popular in the state as a Republican, though. You cite a new poll. Uh, finding that his approval ratings are apparently plummeting, at least according to the Morning Consult poll. Does uh, Halquist have a, a real shot here in uh, otherwise liberal Vermont against a, let's call him a fairly well-liked governor? Or is uh, the fact that she is you know, a, a transgender person, is that going to uh, be enough to defeat her against uh, of Phil Scott? She says it isn't enough to defeat her, and she also uh, can point to a big primary win in a, in a seriously contested primary. Yeah, uh, as evidence that that this is this is not just doable, but now looking uh, increasingly possible. If you had asked me this question uh, about you know whether Scott could be defeated by anyone a few months ago, I, I might have been dubious mm-hmm. uh, because he was posting some very strong numbers. Yeah. One of the Ten most popular governors in the country, but recent polling does suggest that as people have focused in on this race, uh, it's competitive. And here's the other thing: uh, this is this fall, you're going to see, uh, you know, obviously Bernie Sanders running for re-election as an independent, but he has already endorsed uh, the Democratic gubernatorial candidate here. In addition, you have a, a very strong uh, ticket. Uh, the uh, candidate for lieutenant governor, David Zuckerman, a very, very uh, agile campaigner, very savvy guy, mm-hmm. uh, and other people on that ticket. So I, I, mean, I just think Vermont is going to be competitive, and, and that's important 
It's important, obviously, because some history may be made here, and that's always significant. But it's also important because uh, I believe that no matter what happens nationally this fall, you know, Donald Trump is going to still be president, at least until impeachment, and perhaps even longer. Um, <laughs> and so as a result, we have to look to states, and states that have the potential to really be, you know, progressive beacons like Vermont, obviously are, it's important that they elect folks uh, who are ready to, to be leaders. Let's turn to, speaking of states that are uh, progressive beacons, or at least once were, your home state of Wisconsin. A bunch of uh, points I want to try to get to here. What should America know about Tony Evers? He is the Wisconsin state school superintendent who won the Democratic gubernatorial primary on Tuesday. That was also a crowded Democratic field. Uh, He'll be taking on two-term Koch Brothers-backed Republican Governor Scott Walker. What should we know? What should America know about Tony Evers? Well, he is a, a really impressive candidate. Tony Evers is not Mr. Electricity, and he's the first to acknowledge that. Uh, last night, as he was waiting for returns, he tweeted out a picture of him with his family playing euchre. Now, do you know what euchre is? <laughs> I do, but I suspect most people do not. <laughs> it's a card game, and yeah. it's very popular in rural Wisconsin. Right. And so it was exactly the right tweet to send out, no question of that. Uh, but, you know... Not every candidate associates himself with the game of euchre. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, this is, he is a, a very distinctive candidate. He's won three times statewide in a position that uh, Republicans and Democrats have wanted. It's a technically nonpartisan job, but he's state superintendent of public instruction, mm-hmm. and it really oversees the schools. It's a, it's a job that, that people treat very seriously. And as I said, he's won it. In fact, the last time he won, he won overwhelmingly across the state. Uh, he has a long record in education. Beyond that, though, he is, by any measure, a quiet guy. He's not a big showman. Uh, he is very, very serious about economic and social and racial justice. And in the midst of Scott Walker's Wisconsin, he has stood up and battled Walker on a host of issues, so much so that Walker has actually tried to force Tony Evers, as an elected state official, to... Uh, not have his own lawyers representing him in court battles with Walker, forcing him to uh, accept uh, Walker's attorney general as his representative. And Evers has battled back on that. It's been often very, very intense. And, you know, not to get into all the technicalities of it, but just to tell you, this is a guy who's fought with Walker. He's beat him in the courts. He's won at the polls. And last night at at his victory party, he really did outline a kind of old-school Wisconsin progressive agenda. Hmm. He's also got a very strong running mate, uh, a young 31-year-old former state representative named Mandela Barnes, African-American from the city of Milwaukee, uh, and just a a remarkably skilled organizer, as I said, a former legislator, uh, terrific speaker, Mm -hmm. uh, who's just swept the state. He had a very competitive primary. His opponent actually spent more to him, and yet Mandela Barnes in his primary won 70% of the vote statewide. And so what you end up with is, after these very competitive primaries, you have Tony Evers, who won a a very strong victory in the gubernatorial race, with a lieutenant governor candidate who's quite strong. rest of the ticket, uh, generally a younger ticket, 
and then also Tammy Baldwin on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's, you know, it's always dangerous to make predictions about Wisconsin, but I think this is the strongest Wisconsin Democrats have have looked, you know, I would argue since 2002 when they had a, a very, very good election year. And we should uh, also note, to be fair, Governor Scott Walker is also not Mr. Electricity either, so that should be noted. And uh, Evers uh, said in his victory speech on Tuesday night, I beat cancer, now I'll beat Scott Walker. So if Evers can win the uh, the governor's race, uh, John Nichols, can Democrats actually take back enough seats in the state legislature to pass a bill that could at long last overturn some of the uh, several anti-union measures that Walker and the Republicans in the uh, state legislature have jammed through over the past decade? And is that a part of the agenda that Wisconsin Democrats are running on in the state this year? It has to be a part of the agenda, and it is. Um, in fact, Mandela Barnes, the lieutenant governor candidate, uh, was really an organizer and an activist mm-hmm. uh, associated with the Wisconsin Uprising. He was elected to the legislature in 2012, um, you know, on a wave of young progressives who had come out of the protests at the Capitol, turned around, ran for office, and got elected. And so uh, you have a, a ticket that, that is committed to this. You ask about the legislature, it's going to be hard. We shouldn't be dishonest about that. It's a heavily gerrymandered legislature. Uh, the likelihood is that if Evers and uh, Mandela Barnes prevail and other Democrats are on the top of the ticket, there's a decent chance that the Democrats could take the state Senate. They are within two seats there, and there are certainly a couple seats that are, are gettable, mm-hmm. especially in western Wisconsin. So then if you have a governor and a state Senate, the interesting thing is that there were four Republicans in the state assembly who voted against Walker's labor initiatives uh, against his anti-public employee union mm-hmm. legislation. So, uh, you know, then you're starting to look at just how close the assembly is. Now, obviously, if it's a incredible Democratic wave, maybe the Democrats get the assembly as well. But even if they don't get the assembly, the prospect that they can renew at least some labor rights uh, through negotiation, if it's a narrowly divided assembly, but also through appointments. The governor has a tremendous level of appointment for uh, state boards and commissions that oversee a lot of labor issues. There are possibilities for some executive orders. And so uh, the likelihood that things could be a lot better for labor in Wisconsin come January is, is quite real. That's good to hear. Uh, let's uh, move to the fight to uh, replace the retiring U.S. House Speaker Paul Ryan in Wisconsin's 1st Congressional District. Uh, Randy Bryce pretty easily won his Democratic primary to take on attorney and former Paul Ryan aide Brian Stile uh, in the fight to fill Ryan's seat. Uh, now uh, now that we know the November uh, matchup, what are the uh, what are the chances of flipping Ryan's seat from red to blue in a very Republican? I think it's like R plus 12 district with a very progressive Bernie Sanders endorsed iron worker and uh, labor union organizer in Randy Bryce, who is otherwise known as Iron Stash on the Twitters. Uh, I know prog- progressives are pretty keyed up about this, but this still remains a long shot bid, doesn't it, John? Yes, it's a hard race. And I think Randy Bryce, who I've known for a number of years, would be the first to tell you that. Um, it, I, to be very honest with you, running against Paul Ryan would have been easier. Mm. Because yeah. 
Paul Ryan, for all his money and all of his connections, really had taken on a lot of baggage. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, it's it, there's no doubt he he has really presented himself as a guy who simply um, isn't able to stand up for anything except the Koch brothers um, and a little bit of Donald Trump. And that's just not overly popular on the ground. So Ryan's a, Ryan was weak. That's one of the reasons he decided not to run. Uh, style is a blank slate. I mean, he is literally referred to as Paul Ryan's driver. Right. Uh, you know, which he was at right. one time. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and he and kind so, of he kind of even looks like uh, Paul Ryan. I mean, it seems to me Democrats here would be smart to basically turn Brian Style into Paul Ryan as they run. Well, that's that's right because Ryan does have a lot of baggage. Style is obviously already running as you know, like this this outsider. I, you know, I don't even know where Washington is on the map, kind of guy. <laughs> right. Um, but but it doesn't seem very genuine, and so. What I think is you're going to have you're going to have a very very serious race, uh, and for the first time in a long while, the Democrats are going to have the resources they need to compete because Randy Bryce has attracted a significant amount of support, and he's very strong on social media. He's got a you know a fundraising base around the country and also in the state and in the district. So I just think it's it's within the realm, but but don't be dishonest about it. It's it is. If we look at the list of uh, seats that Democrats can win, this isn't the, the first or the 15th. It's down that list. But remember, I have always said, if Democrats are going to get a governing majority, mm-hmm. they have to win the first district in Wisconsin. And I don't mean that's not tipping the House back by a tiny margin. Mm-hmm. They, to, to govern, you have got to have you know, a, good, a good, solid double-digit majority in the House of Representatives, so you don't have, you know, southern border state folks kind of slipping away from you. And despite the fact there aren't very many of them left, but but uh, so I think the first is one that Democrats have to compete hard in. I think they will. I think they've got a good candidate in Iron Stash. He's had some hard times. You know, he's had some stumbles along the way, uh, and they've, you know, gone after revealing his, his arrest for, you know, driving while intoxicated, two decades ago, a marijuana bust of some sort, like 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for him, uh, what he has to do, he's been very apologetic about that. He says his own life changed uh, when he had his son some years ago. But uh, for him, I think he also has to embrace this and just say, look, people like him, factory workers, iron workers, they don't run for Congress very often. Right. And when they do, the elites do everything they can to tear them apart find every weakness in somebody who didn't, you know, grow up with a silver spoon. And I just think that if Bryce runs saying, look, I'm a real human being, I've made mistakes, but I think somebody like me would be a good member of Congress, my sense is in this very working class district made up of a number of, of historic factory cities, um, he's got a chance. John Nichols, I want to uh, get to uh, Minnesota in a moment here with uh, some uh, two quick questions there. But outside, at least from what we read outside of Wisconsin, uh, the state is getting hit pretty hard by Trump's trade war in uh, in several areas. Dairy prices are down due to retaliatory tariffs from Mexico. Soybeans are uh, and corn farmers are suffering because of retaliation from China and Wisconsin's iconic Harley Davidson is looking to move jobs offshore to uh, 
uh, due to threats of retaliatory terrorists from Europe. How is that playing uh, in Wisconsin now that we're three months out, less than three months out from the midterms? Is this going to have a real effect? Uh, will it have any effect as you see it on the electorate in the in the Badger State this November from your reporting? Mm-hmm. If it has no effect uh, in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, and a number of other states, then Republicans are going to make it through. They may... They might lose the House narrowly. They'll probably keep the Senate. Um, this will be a, a kind of a, a standard off year. I'll be very blunt with you. The tariff issue, is, is it's got to mean something. Uh, I think it will. Uh, and my sense is it has the potential to be the issue that really does tip not just some suburban areas, mm-hmm. but starts to tip exurban areas. And, and here's, a, here's a confirmation of the point. Uh, Last night, when Tony Evers gave his speech, he mentioned that he grew up in Plymouth, Wisconsin. It's one of the, Plymouth is one of the largest cheese-producing communities in the United States. It literally is it's a place where there's a big cheese company, a lot of processing goes on there. He, as a kid, worked in a cheese factory. And, uh, and he said, my hometown is hurting. It's being devastated by these tariffs. This is huge. Uh, because especially those specialty cheeses that are exported and, or at least that rely on, on, you know, international trade. Mm-hmm. And, and so he made it central to his speech because he thinks, obviously as a guy who knows the state pretty well, that this is an issue that might well tip the gubernatorial race. And I want to tell you something. Down in Randy Bryce's district, when you get out of Racine and Kenosha on Lake Michigan, before you get to Janesville over on the western part of the district, that's farm country. And it's dairy farm country. And so uh, this is a real thing. There's no question farmers are hurting. Uh, I was in Minnesota uh, last week, and, and the farmers there are really hurting. Uh, Iowa, the same thing. And, you know, Trump moved $12 billion into ag, you know, you know some sort of effort to kind of buy people off, mm-hmm. right? Well, I hate to tell you, I know our media doesn't cover farm country very much. $12 billion doesn't define farm country. No, it's a lot bigger than that. Yep. And also because of the power of corporate agribusiness, when you put twelve billion in, it's very slow, if ever, that that gets down to working farmers. Speaking of um, Minnesota, let so me. It's uh, a real issue. Yeah, uh, good. I'm glad to hear it. I think it is too. But you're right; it's not getting the coverage that uh, <laughs> that I think it uh, actually deserves. So it's unclear what the effect will be. Let me uh, very quickly get to Minnesota since you mentioned it. Uh, I know you watch that closely as well. Republican Jeff Johnson sort of shocked the uh, political world in Minnesota by winning the uh, GOP primary for governor in a big way over former two-term governor Tim Pawlenty, uh, who was hoping to win his old job back. He had been seen as the front runner. Johnson will now take on uh, Democratic nominee uh, U.S. Congressman Tim Waltz. What lessons uh, should we take from Pawlenty's Surprise loss here, and uh, and then you can tell me about what the outlook is for uh, replacing Democratic Governor Mark Dayton in November. This is a huge, huge result. Uh, in fact, I would argue this is one of the biggest upsets of the year. Now, people, yep. obviously, people weren't following the Minnesota Republican governor primary too closely, so not everybody had, you know, like their, their chart on their wall about how <laughs> which counties Pawlenty was leading in. Right. But the fact of the matter is that Minnesota is a state that has had close gubernatorial races. The Republicans win in Minnesota when they have an establishment kind of candidate, a little more mainstream, uh, somebody who can appeal strongly in the suburbs, 
swing, you know, pull over a lot of the rural vote and even some Democratic votes. Pawlenty has proven to be that, whether you like the guy or not. And um, he was seen as an incredibly viable contender in November. Yep. But he got beat by a guy who ran to his right. And, you know, I was in Minnesota last week up in Bemidji, and I came out of the hotel I was in in Bemidji, Minnesota, and the public TV station was next door. And there in the parking lot was this Johnson guy with his van and his driver doing an interview with the public TV in Bemidji. Well, to get to Bemidji from the Twin Cities, you got to go four hours, right? Mm-hmm. Or better part of four hours. Mm-hmm. What I'm telling you is, Valenti got outworked. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's an ideological component here, but this Johnson guy, he worked hard. He beat him. It's a huge result. The problem is that Johnson is very right-wing for, uh, yep. for a Minnesota November election. And the guy who was nominated against him, Walls, mm-hmm. the congressman up there, very popular guy, has represented rural areas, has a real, you know, strong following. Mm-hmm. And i got to be blunt with you, I, I think you, I'm not going to guarantee it, because Minnesota is, you know, it's a competitive state. But my sense is that that governor's race was decided last night. Let me give you uh, one more before we get out here. John Nichols, uh, progressive congressman and DNC deputy chair Keith Ellison, easily, very easily won his race for the uh, state attorney general nomination in Minnesota. But now he's facing these allegations out just this past weekend of domestic abuse. Is this going to be a problem for state Democrats in Minnesota, where they've only had one Republican attorney general, as I understand it, since 1955? Uh, And will any of this, in any event, uh, affect these other races, positively or negatively, for Democrats in Minnesota, where you've got both of their uh, incumbent Democratic U.S. senators, both women, uh, running for re-election this year? Look, the Attorney General's office in in Minnesota is an incredibly powerful and important office, and out of that office have come uh, a number of of major uh, political leaders in that state and nationally. So the race is a big deal. And you're right that there were uh, revelations or at least charges that came out about Keith Ellison on the weekend before the primary. Ellison was the front runner. There's simply no question of that. And he's very popular with the base of the party. And so I think a lot of people gave him, uh, you know, a, a, their support mm-hmm. in, in this primary. He won it very big against some other credible candidates. But I, I suspect the issue is going to linger for at least a little bit, and uh, there's a back and forth on it. And you know, as with any of these things, I, I think you have to you have to respect uh, that the, a woman is stepping up and saying uh, things happened. Uh, Keith Ellison is saying they didn't happen. Uh, there's going to be a, a lot of examination of this, at least in the coming weeks. Minnesota media, particularly the Star Tribune uh, and a lot of the TV stations, it's some of the, the strongest local media in the country. Uh, and so I think this issue is going to uh, be examined and probably sorted out one way or the other uh, in coming weeks. But, you know, it's one of those, those really rough things where this you know, came out right literally as the primary was being held. Yeah. And it was a big story. It is a big story. In yeah. And I don't, you know, I, I don't necessarily know where it's going to go. I don't claim to know enough on the ground about it. Uh, but what I can tell you is uh, Ellison's seat came open uh, because he moved up to this uh, AG's race. And it's very interesting that Ilhan Omar, 
uh, a Muslim state legislator, a Somali immigrant, was nominated uh, for that congressional seat. So Minnesota, of all places, now has produced our second Muslim woman who is likely to go to Congress this fall, which is quite a newsworthy result, I think, as well. It is indeed, and uh, it should be noted, Al Franken was sort of forced to resign for much less, or at least uh, uh, not not nearly as disturbing allegations as those against uh, Keith Ellison. So we will see mm-hmm. uh, what comes of that in the days ahead. John Nichols, thanks for uh, helping us understand whatever the hell went on on, uh, on Tuesday and what will go on between now and November. Of course, you can find John Nichols' work always at thenation.com and, of course, over at Wisconsin's Capital Times. And you should follow him on the Twitters at Nichols Uprising. John Nichols, always appreciated, my friend. Tremendous honor to be with you always, my friend. Thank you, sir. Okay, a quick break, and we will come back with, if I can fit them in, two stories. Uh, One on what happened in Kansas after we went off the air yesterday, and another piece of breaking news just coming uh, over the wires as we go to air. We'll try to get to both of those right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked the cake. Baked the cake. Baked a big fat cake. If I knew you Welcome were coming, I'd have Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That's your hint for our breaking news in a moment. But I want to get to this. Kansas Governor Jeff Collier conceded on Tuesday evening in the state's Republican gubernatorial primary, saying that he will endorse Secretary of State Chris Kobach. A week after their neck-and-neck finish threatened to send the race to a recount and to court. That, according to Associated Press, Collier accepted defeat in a surprise announcement after a review of some provisional ballots from most Kansas counties failed to find enough votes for him to overcome a deficit of 110 votes out of more than 311,000 votes initially cast in the August 7 primary. We had discussed yesterday how Kobach had uh, recused himself from the uh, from the counting and the potential recount that could lie ahead or that could have in any event lied ahead. But his deputy, his uh, secretary of state's deputy, Um, was the one deciding uh, what provisional ballots should and shouldn't be counted. And in fact, it appeared that he was giving inaccurate information about which ballots, which provisional ballots should be counted to the various counties in Kansas. Jeff Collier had um, disagreed and tried to uh, say as much. And it looked like he was going to, you know, challenge what was going on here and potentially go to court. But As soon as we got off the air, he decided to quit instead. Now, I should note that a concession does not mean, does actually not mean anything. It doesn't actually have any legal ramifications. The counting will continue. 
But in this case, you won't have someone presumably like Collier to press counties as far as what ballots should and should not be counted under Kansas law and so forth. Well, I'm, I'm really surprised, I have to say, but, you know. That he dropped out? Yeah, that he dropped out. Well, uh, Kobach will now face Democrat Laura Kelly and is likely to face independent candidate Greg Orman as well in the November general election. But uh, Democrats believe that their party has a better chance to capture the gubernatorial seat with Kobach as their Republican opponent instead of Collier. So they're just fine with this, I think, overall. Uh, the bid from Orman, the potential bid for a third party run uh, from Orman, uh, he's a Kansas City area businessman. He's launched what could become the most serious independent candidacy for governor since the 1930s says AP. Uh, So that may complicate Democrats' chances here of recapturing the governor's office this November. Um, But in a statement after Collier's announcement, Kelly, Laura Kelly, said that Kansas families already have suffered enough under former Governor Brownback with Chris Kobach. She says as governor, Kansans will get all the failed policies of Sam Brownback, plus Kobach's unique brand of hyper-partisanship and self-promotion. She said, quite simply, Chris Kobach is Sam Brownback on steroids. Wow. Um, But again, this concession has no legal meaning, meaning the counts will continue. And we'll see if, in fact, Collier ends up making those uh, making up those hundred and ten votes that uh, now separate him from uh, from Kobach. But Collier looked at some provisionals and decided, well, um, there's no way I'm going to gain one hundred and ten. How he knows that, I don't know. But anyway. That's what he's decided. All right. One last story. This breaking news uh, just before air here. The Christian Baker, whose refusal to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court just a few months ago, is now suing Colorado again after the state ruled that he had discriminated against another customer, this time a transgender woman. In a lawsuit filed uh, yesterday, attorneys for the uh, for the baker, Jack Phillips, who owns Masterpiece Cake Shop, claims that Colorado is on a, quote, crusade to crush him because of his religious beliefs. Another victim uh, after Phillips, the uh, the lawsuit states that after Phillips defended himself all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and won, he thought Colorado's hostility toward his faith was over. Colorado has renewed its war against him, the suit says, by embarking on another attempt to prosecute him in direct conflict with the Supreme Court's ruling in his favor. The suit says... But that's not entirely true. The Supreme Court sided with Phillips in a June decision, uh, in a 7-2 decision, saying that legal proceedings in Colorado had shown a hostility toward the Baker's religious views. However, the opinion was a very narrow one. It applied to the specific facts of that case only. It did not determine that he had a right to deny uh, selling a, uh, a wedding cake to the same-sex couple who had tried to purchase one from him. The court did not rule on whether business owners can, in fact, invoke religious objections to refuse service to LGBTQ people. 
In a decision uh, issued in late June, less than a month after the Supreme Court had ruled in the Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission case, that same Colorado Commission found probable cause that Phillips had, in fact, discriminated against Autumn Scardina by refusing to make a cake celebrating, in her words, the seventh year anniversary of my transition from male to female. The refusal, according to the commission, was based on Scardina's transgender status, adding, quote, a claim of discriminatory denial of full and equal enjoyment of a place of public accommodation has been established. In other words, the Colorado uh, Civil Rights Commission said, yes, this was discriminatory and no, a business, a public business cannot do that. The commission then went on to cite part of the Supreme Court's June 4 ruling to back up its decision against Phillips. Uh, they wrote, quote, as asserted by the U.S. Supreme Court, it is unexceptional that Colorado law can protect gay persons just as it can protect other classes of individuals in acquiring whatever products and services they choose on the same terms and conditions that are offered to other members of the public. So uh, they cite the Supreme Court in this case to support, uh, Colorado does, to support their decision, and they are right to do so. You know, there was a lot of folks on the right who thought this was a big win somehow for the uh, Republicans and Christians and anti-gay people. That was not what the U.S. Supreme Court actually said if you bothered to read the ruling. And I don't know that the court is going to, if this makes it to the U.S. Supreme Court, is going to like the idea of, this guy, who's clearly his objections were not to marriage equality, he just hates gay people. Yeah. LGBTQ people. He's a bigot. He's a bigot. And he's proven it again. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thank you very much, Des. And to my guest today, John Nichols of The Nation. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other broadcast ever, you can download it for free at bradblog.com. Feel free to drop me an email. Always good to hear from you. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And find, follow, and share me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at TheBradBlog. Finally, my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves without fear nor favor. All right, that's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.